Well, here in the uh, Great Lakes state, you all know that water is plentiful, right? And that means that uh, fishing has become a pastime for many. That was certainly the case for my grandfather and my father. I can remember vividly the first time they took me fishing. When we went with my grandpa, we'd always go to this little lake called Grabmire Lake. And the night before, we would go and we would dig up worms in hopes to lure in a bluegill or maybe a catfish in this little area of the lake we called Catfish Cove. And I went proudly with my Zebco Snoopy fishing pole to be a grand angler with my grandpa and my dad. Then when we got older, my dad bought a fishing boat, and once in a while we'd go on trips up north, and dad allowed us to go to the tackle shop and buy a lure for each trip. And so I'd pick out an artificial lure, maybe a jig or a spinner or some sort of spoon in hopes to do some serious fishing. I was growing up, we were going to catch some bass or northern pike or maybe walleye. And then when I was in college, my dad graciously, generously um, invited me to go with him on a trip way up north into Canada where we fished in a remote location. We even had a Native American guide, and he pointed us to certain lures that worked better for different types of fish. My point in all this is that fishing is a sport that's reliant upon baits and lures to entice fish to bite. In our study of 2 Peter, especially last week's sermon, we've got into this section where Peter is denouncing the false teachers of his day. And if you think about it, the false teachers of Peter's day are fishermen in their own right. But they're trying to lure would-be followers in with their teaching and into a lifestyle that is in stark contrast to the lifestyle of an authentic Christian. So we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 19 today, and then Pastor Don is going to conclude chapter 2 next Sunday, Lord willing. When we think about these false teachers, we're going to be thinking about their tactics, their fishing strategies for luring people in. So just listen as we read from 2 Peter 2, starting in the middle of verse 10. There's probably an indentation in your Bible, starting with the words bold and arrogant. It says, bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. 
But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. So as you listen, hopefully you notice that verses 10 through 16 essentially describe with vivid description the false teacher's wicked ways. And we will return to those verses momentarily, but I want you to focus in on verses 17 through 19 as we begin our study of this passage today. I want to think especially about their goal, their tactic of luring people into their own way of life. If you look at verse 18, your version probably says something like, they entice people. Most English translations go with that word, entice. If you have a King James in front of you, it says they allure you, which captures a bit better this fishing metaphor that Peter's actually using here. He's saying these false teachers lure and bait people into following them. They're like the fisherman who tosses out the lure in hopes that he gets a bite. These folks toss out some bait in hopes that they'll get some bite. Now, the content of their, their bait is some big talk that we see described in verse 19 as the promise of freedom. That's how they get your attention, with the promise of freedom. Now, keep in mind what Pastor Doug taught us last week. The main teaching of these false teachers in Peter's day is that they're denying the second coming of Jesus and the judgment that he'll bring. They're denying that there will be any sort of divine judgment in the future. They're denying that there'll be any sort of consequences for your wrongdoing, which leads them to promise freedom, right? If you're not going to be judged, if there are no consequences, then just freely live however you like. That's the way they capture attention. And that's really appealing to us as human beings, isn't it? Because we want to be free. We want to have liberty and independence. We want to do things our own way, and if we can be free and live how we like, that sounds pretty good to us. So we can see why people might have been duped into the false teaching of these teachers in Peter's day. But if that wasn't enough, they throw out an even more enticing bait. If you look at verse 18, it says they appeal to their lustful desires. In other words, not only were you free, you can really experience life to the hilt. You can do whatever you want, indulge in whatever pleasures you want, and there are no consequences. So as one commentator put it, he says, 
grandiose sophistry, that's just wisdom, grandiose sophistry is their hook, and lusty filth is their bait. Or as I'm saying this morning, big talk is their hook, and sensual walk is their bait. Now this, this pitch of the false teachers was evidently quite appealing even to some Christians. Otherwise, Peter probably wouldn't have been writing about it. But the question is, can these false teachers deliver on their promise of freedom? Well, in verse 17, Peter answers emphatically, no. They absolutely cannot. And he uses two word pictures to describe the false teachers. First, he says, they are like springs without water. Most of you know that I lived and worked in Afghanistan for a period of time, and I worked for a relief and development company, and it was a Christian organization. We were helping Afghans get resettled in their hometowns, and the project was to rebuild their homes and dig new wells. You need water, the basic need of human beings to live, physically speaking. So it was encouraging when we'd go to some of these remote villages and we'd find that there were already wells in place until you actually approached the well. Because we found that well after well after well in these dry desert regions of Afghanistan were dry. They gave the appearance of refreshment and life, but then they didn't produce the one thing that they promised, water. The same is true of these false teachers. They promise freedom, but they're like springs without water. Not only that, he says, they are like mists driven by a storm. And we've been fortunate this summer to have an ample amount of rain. I don't know if you could hear the rain over here a few minutes ago, but I was trying to preach in the creative service and I couldn't even hear myself think. But we've had an ample amount of rain, which is good. It's especially good for farmers. Because there's nothing more discouraging to a farmer than to see lightning crashing and hear uh, the thunder crashing only to get a few drops, maybe a mist of rain. It's just devastating because the, the one thing that the storm promised didn't produce anything more than a mist. The false teachers are like this. Their message is a bunch of hot air. They're like the politician who makes a promise and can't keep it. And so... He wants us to understand that their big talk has no substance. He wants us to be warned that there are springs without water and mists driven out by a storm. And if we weren't warned enough by their big talk, he also wants us to know that their walk is truly depraved. These men, they, they promise freedom, but it says at the end of verse 19 that they themselves are slaves of depravity. So someone who's enslaved doesn't have the power or the ability to give freedom to someone else. If you think about it, they were incapable of delivering the freedom that they promised because they themselves were slaves of depravity. Now we're all 
mastered by something. We're all slaves to something or someone. If you think about it, the alcoholic might feel free to drink whatever or however much he wants, but really he is mastered by that bottle. Or the wealthy workaholic might feel free to purchase whatever he wants, but really he's mastered by the dollar, keeping up with the Joneses. The helicopter mom, she might feel free to intervene into her kids' lives at school or on the athletic field, but really, interestingly, she's mastered by her kids. The retiree, she feels finally free from that horrible work week, now only to be mastered by her social calendar. And so we're all mastered by something. I mean, even Christians, we ought to be mastered by Jesus. But he's the only one that can really deliver freedom. He can deliver freedom from sin because he is free to offer that forgiveness. He has secured it for us. These false teachers are still enslaved. They're enslaved to their depravity. It has mastery over them. And we see their depravity described in the sensual walk described from verses 10 to 16. We could describe their, or categorize, I should say, their behavior into five different categories. I'm borrowing these categories from Gene Green, a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He says, their sensual walk is categorized or characterized by arrogance, irrationality, dedication to pleasure, sexual perversion, and greed. So starting in verse 10, we see that Peter calls them bold and arrogant. In fact, these false teachers thought so highly of themselves that they thought themselves better than angels. They slandered angels or celestial beings or glorious ones, as your version might put it. Now, time doesn't permit to do a full sermon on angels. It doesn't permit us to correct all the wrong things we've learned about angels from the Hallmark store or television or regrettably our local Christian bookstore, but we can keep a few things in mind about angels as we think about these false teachers here. Remember that angels are created beings. They're created by God to be his messenger. They're created with superior strength and power, which Peter points out in verse 11. And one of their duties is to administer God's justice. Jesus is described, and I think it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, as returning at his, his second coming to bring the justice of God with an army of angels with them, with him. So they are God's instrument of justice. Now, what was it that these false teachers are denying? They're denying Jesus' second coming. They're denying divine judgment. So in denying Jesus' second coming, they are denying this God-approved work of justice that angels will one day carry out. They're speaking slanderously, negatively defaming God's appointed messengers. And Peter says, not even probably it's the good angels speak that negatively of the so-called fallen angels. They just do the task that God called them to. These men are more arrogant. They truly are the fools who rush in 
where angels fear to tread. And their arrogance leads us into this second category of their depraved, sensual lifestyle, irrationality. In an effort to describe just how irrational these false teachers are, Peter compares them to brute beasts, to animals which lack the sophisticated reasoning that God has given human beings made in his image. In fact, Peter states that in large part, it's their animal-like irrational behavior and teaching that make them candidates for destruction. Richard Baucom, a New Testament scholar, says in the ancient world, the idea that certain animals were born to be slaughtered and eaten was common. And while this perfectly reasonable idea might be less common today, I think we still have this sort of category in our mind when we think about certain types of animals. Not your pet dog, but no one doubts that the pigs born on my father's farm are going to end up as pork chops on your grill later this afternoon. It's just a not-so-subtle, you know, cry to put some pork on your fork there, right? <laughs> Seriously, some animals, we understand, by God's design, may be eaten, enjoyed. Their purpose is to be caught and destroyed. We could say their destiny is destruction. And he's saying these false teachers are so irrational, so animal-like, that they too will perish. They too will perish. We'll talk a little bit more about their destruction later on. And keep in mind that they're not being singled out by Peter because they just accidentally got their theology wrong. Their way of reasoning from God's word is so irrational and so unreasonable that they are calling people to leave the clear, reasonable, rational teaching of Scripture, of Jesus himself, to leave the way and follow them into their wicked ways. And for that, in verse 13, it says, they will be paid back harm with the harm that they've done. The harm they've done becomes even more vivid when we continue through verse 13 with this phrase. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They were dedicated to pleasure. A carousing and reveling is a description of the ultimate self-indulgent lifestyle. It's hedonism to the hilt. It's especially out-of-control type of behaviors, like drunkenness, for instance. They probably said with the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, we call pleasure the alpha and the omega of a blessed life. Pleasure is our first and kindred good. Now, everybody knows historically that carousing, reveling is done at night, not in the broad daylight. You party hardy in dark nightclubs and backwoods bonfires where you can't be seen and you can't get caught. But these false teachers were so arrogant that they brought their debauchery into the daylight. 
Evidently, daytime debauchery was frowned upon even in the degenerate Roman society in which Peter lived. In other words, even in a permissive society, perhaps much like our own is becoming, people still knew better than to live out their sensuality in broad daylight. And to make matters worse, they brought their depraved ways, their hedonistic ways, right into the church. It says that they are blots and blemishes, I'm in verse 13, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you, which is probably a reference to the so-called love feast that Christians would enjoy after a time of gathered worship. Church dinner, a potluck of some sort, and they're bringing their raucous partying there. It's possible even that they were bringing this sort of sinful activity right into the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Which reminds me of Paul's instruction not to get drunk at the Lord's Supper. They have no shame. They're completely arrogant, completely devoted to pleasure. And so Peter calls them blots and blemishes which is the opposite of what Christians ought to be. As we'll see in a moment, 2 Peter 3.14 says Christians are supposed to be spotless and blameless, not blots and blemishes. Their dedication to pleasure in general shows itself most despicably in their promotion of sexual perversion, our fourth category. Peter says... In verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. This could mean a couple different things. It may merely mean that they're always looking for the opportunity to commit adultery. That is, they're always looking for the opportunity, the prospect of engaging in sexual intercourse outside of the bounds of marriage as God designed. Like browsing the websites, looking for a sexual partner or something to arouse them sexually. Or they're looking for that weekend hookup. That's the type of character that these depraved false teachers were exhibiting, eyes full of adultery. But it also might mean and be a subtle reminder to the words of Jesus himself. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, that sexual sin begins with our eyes, right? He says... Not only shouldn't you commit adultery, you shouldn't look on someone who's not your spouse lustfully. And that further reminds me that Jesus says, we don't just happen upon sin. Really, sin springs up from our own sinful nature. He says in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what make a man unclean. And so these false teachers are literally living out of the overflow of their own sinful hearts. And not only are they guilty of their nonstop sinful behavior, see again, they're seducing others. Verse 14, they seduce others. The unstable. That word seduce in the NIV is the same fishing term. Luring, baiting, enticing. And they're enticing the unstable. 
Now, I don't know if this is a reference to rape or pedophilia, but whatever the case, they are taking advantage of others. They're exploiting the weak. They're sexually perverted religious leaders living sexually promiscuous lives. And finally, they're motivated by greed. Peter finishes verse 14 and continues in 15 and 16 with this denunciation. He says, They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Greed. They're greedy false teachers. I suppose all of us have struggled with greed to one degree or another. We tasted a little luxury at a friend's house, and then we went home coveting their things for ourselves. Or we saved up for a nice vacation and experienced a, a good time away from home, only to come home and complain about what we don't have in the simple pleasures of life. Why couldn't we have a little more? Or we got that raise at work, but we were disappointed that it wasn't more. It feels like in our materialistic society that it's quite easy to cultivate greed. You don't have to try. But Peter says, these men just didn't fall into their greedy ways. He says they're experts in greed. Literally, they're training themselves to be greedy. An athlete goes to the gym pumping iron, training himself to build muscles. You could say that these false teachers have gone to the gym of greed, training their hearts to be more and more covetous, wanting more and more, especially materialistic wealth. Not only are they greedy, they have a role model, a mascot, you might say. They've left the straight and narrow way, which is probably a reference to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? They've left that straight and narrow way to follow the way of Balaam. Now, Balaam was an Old Testament pagan prophet. You can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 and the following chapters. Time doesn't permit us to go into a great level of detail, but let me summarize the story of Balaam in case you're not familiar or in case you need a refresher. Balaam was hired by the Moabites while Israel was wandering the desert. He was hired by the Moabites to put down a curse on God's people, Israel. And Balaam actually interacted with the Lord himself. And the Lord permitted Balaam to go along with the Moabites, but he must not put this curse on God's people. So as Balaam is going along with this plan that was permitted by the Lord, it seems that Balaam's motives were mixed. He still was greedy for this handsome sum of money that they agreed to pay him would he curse God's people. And in order to get Balaam's attention, God supernaturally intervenes. He causes his donkey to speak to him. He shows up in the form of the angel of the Lord to rebuke him 
to keep him from continuing with his greedy ways. But Balaam, in his heart of hearts, he loved the wages of wickedness. In other words, he was not interested in the glory of God and his work. He was not interested in the good of God's people. He was interested in his own financial benefit. He was a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, looking for prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. And Peter says the same is true of these false teachers, and we could say the same is true of false teachers in our day and age. After all, we live in the age of health and wealth, gospel prosperity. It's not any gospel at all. Where TV preachers and globe-trotting evangelists promise riches to their followers, live luxurious lifestyle themselves, while most of their followers live well below the poverty line, barely scraping enough to get by. Despicable, greedy behavior. False teachers then and today are motivated by a big following because with a big following comes monetary gain. So we who are preachers have to remind ourselves of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, where Peter says, Pastor shepherds must not be greedy for money, but eager to serve. So that rounds out the five. They're arrogant, irrational, dedicated to pleasure, sexually perverse, greedy false teachers. That's the description of their sensual walk. So what will we take away from this today for ourselves? Well, I'd like to return to that opening illustration of fishing. Sometimes a fisherman ends up at a stream or a pond. He's heard good things about that body of water, and he's desiring to get there and lure in the big one. And just as he's about to cast his line, he sees this sign posted, no fishing. Violators will be prosecuted. And it foils his whole plan. He can't fish there because he fears the judgment that's coming. Well, we might say that 2 Peter chapter 2 is like a big sign from God himself that says, posted, no false teaching violators will be prosecuted because the destiny of these false teachers and any like them is definite destruction look again at verse 12 we already looked there once but just to remind you Peter likens them to brute beasts these false teachers born to be caught and destroyed and like beasts, they too will perish. So make no mistake about it. The arrogant, irrational ways of false teachers will result in divine punishment. In verse 14, Peter calls them an accursed brood or children of the curse. And it reminded me of the fact that having left the way of Jesus, they've aligned themselves with Satan himself. And Satan is cursed by the Lord himself. Genesis 3.15 says that Satan, that ancient serpent, 
he will receive a fatal blow, crushing his head by the Lord himself. The same destruction is in store for all unrepentant false teachers. Then lastly, in verse 17, we learn that these false teachers have reservations in a place characterized by blackest darkness. Now, when we think of eternal judgment, we often think of hellfire and brimstone. We think of heat. But another description in the Bible describes God's eschatological judgment as darkness, the blackest darkness, away from the presence of the Lord who is light for all eternity. A scary thought indeed. So since their destiny is definite destruction, I want to say to you as Christians today, be encouraged. Might sound odd, but be encouraged that evil will not prevail ultimately. Be encouraged that justice will be served. Be encouraged that though it feels like the health and wealth, greedy, prosperity gospel preachers are winning, or though it feels like in increasing sort of ways that the agenda of liberal churches who speak an irrational, unreasonable argument about sexual ethics are winning, they will not prevail. God will see that justice is served. The destiny of false teachers is definite destruction. But I think the other takeaway point for us, besides being encouraged today, is be warned. Don't be lured in by the big talk and the sensual walk of false teachers. Whether they exhibit all of these characteristics in our day and age or not, don't be duped into their false teaching. It leads toward definite destruction. There aren't any explicit commands or imperatives in this section of Scripture, but chapter 3 is going to be filled with them, so I'll just give you a a taste of where we're headed, probably in the month of August, to chapter 3, verse 10. As we await the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends... Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So as we, as Christians, are we being found spotless, blameless, and at peace as we await Jesus' return? Or are we being lured in by the blots and blemishes who are destined for destruction? Be warned, South Church. There are false teachers today. There are sometimes nice people who write books and blogs and speak on 
nice television programs and who even pastor in local churches. Don't be lured in by their big talk and their sensual walk. They are destined for destruction and so are their followers. May we never be lured away from the straight and narrow way of Jesus, the only way that leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we've heard your word. Now help us to live in light of it. We are encouraged to know that you ultimately will prevail through your son, Jesus, who died for our sins and rose victorious from the grave and will come again to establish his forever kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. But in the meantime, help us to be on guard, to steer clear of false teaching ourselves and to steer others clear of its teaching as well. We pray all these things in Christ's name.